Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Hi everybody, welcome to another Plundergrounds. Today I am talking about Zine, uh, the Face Folio 100 Fantasy Portraits for Tabletop Role-Playing Games. This is a zine that was put together for Zine Quest 2 by Goblins Henchman with art by Marcin S. And I would think of it as a true collaboration between artist and uh, and writer, producer, uh, text organizer, uh, art director, you know, all the hats that, that uh, Goblins Henchman wears uh, on this one. It is a simple zine to talk about in some ways, uh, so let's just get to it. It's a digest-sized uh, game aid. It is exactly what it says it is. It is a folio of faces. Its uh, cover is heavy cardstock, um, white with black and white illustrations, um, and black and white illustrations throughout. But I say that with a little bit of... Um, a little bit of, um, of a caveat. Uh, while they are black and white and grayscale, um, the grays in here are kind of bluish in a way that gives it some depth that it wouldn't have if it were just straight up uh, black and uh, gray and white, right? It's, it's got a little bit of a slate-ish color to it, which is nice. The cover is uh, has a coating that I can best describe as like rubberized. It has a real grippy texture in the hand, which took me a while to get used to. Uh, didn't like it at first. Like I, I wanted to kind of like drop it when I touched it, but actually I could totally see the, the utility of it. It's a nice, once you get used to it, it's kind of a nice feel uh, and uh, seems to be pretty resistant to bends or fingerprints or anything like that, which is nice. The front just has the name of the zine. Um, the back has a, a kind of a, uh, well, I should say that the words face folio or cutouts letters with the faces coming through, which is kind of cool. And then on the back, you have an index of all the pictures. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten um, columns. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten rows. So that's a hundred. Oh. It says it right on the cover. I'm an idiot. A hundred fantasy portraits. <laughs> so the back has a 10 by 10 grid of, of faces just as, and they're really tiny thumbnails, but they give you a quick um, overview of what's in the zine and help you find stuff, right? Find a face that you want. You might even use it as a die drop table where you could just lay the zine down and throw a die on it and get a face off of it, which is kind of cool. Um, the 32 interior pages are, uh, divided up by heritage or race, if you will. And those are demon blood, dragon blood, dwarves, elves, gnomes, half orcs, halflings, humans, NPC nobles, and NPC town folk. Each uh, spread, each, each heritage has, uh, let's see, one, I think they're all the same. One, two, there are five pages. One, two, three, no, four pages. Four pages per heritage, okay? Um, Three of those pages are uh, divided into four quadrants with a portrait in each quadrant. The first page out of that uh, run, the right-hand side is that as well, meaning it's uh, two of the, it's one half of the quadrant of four. So it's two, uh, two portraits, one stacked on top of the other. But the left-hand column is a name generator that is uh, 10 rows deep. So you roll a D10 and then there, you probably roll a D10 three times. There are three syllables, uh, a name plus, and a, plus a syllable plus a syllable, right? So I happen to be on the page for half orcs. So if I were just to pick numbers uh, one, nine, and three, 
I would get jail, uh, jail ear, irsh, jail irsh. So uh, I could probably combine those different ways: jail shear or or shear jail or or ear jail, eel jailer. Or, that would be weird. Uh, jail, she- yeah, I think jail shear. I'm just gonna stick with the original. Um, but uh, you know, so you could, or you, I could just use jail. Sh- like I could ignore one of those. Obviously, you can do anything you want with these, but it's kind of cool to have a name generator for for uh, very quickly generating names for characters. Uh, the portraits are. Well, they're just, they're fantastic. The art is really good. Um, the, the differentiation is mostly in the faces, which I like. So you have a mixture of skin tones. You got a mixture of hair colors. You got um, an even mixture of female versus uh, male genders in here. Um, and a pretty good mixture of like martial versus non-martial um classes in terms of their accoutrements but the the things that they're wearing and the things that they're holding are usually generic enough or basic enough that you they could fit a a variety of character types they're not overly prescriptive oops my mic cut out i have forgotten and once again i'm recording in safari and safari and anchor don't get along very well and the mic cuts out after five minutes so <laughs> I lost a little bit of my recording there, but we'll continue on. So the book kind of naturally opens up to half orcs because that's where the center staple is. And I'm just going to stick with that um, and uh, describe the, uh, see, eight, uh, nine, ten portraits that come with the half orcs. Uh, the top row is female. The bottom row is male. But I'm just going to go through and kind of... Um, just tell you the things that jump out at me and I'm going to go, um, I'll go across the, I'll go uh, top, bottom, you know, like top to bottom on each column and then across. So, uh, let's see the first one holding a big sword, um, uh, very threatening, like approaching the camera, uh, like almost like uh, aggressively walking toward the camera, long light colored hair, um, fierce snarl, this looks like a, a very, like, don't mess with this one, right? <laughs> uh, next one is, um, has a fur vestment, um, fur and leather. It looks like a, you know, a hide that's turned, uh, uh fur side in and, uh, but sleeveless and, uh, he's holding a, a, a gnarled oak staff has a big ring of some kind with a dark stone in it. Uh, his facial expression is, uh, praising, you know, probably I would say he's missing. Oh, for a minute there, I thought he was missing a tusk, but he isn't. Uh, just one tusk is a little more pronounced than the others. Um, since these are half orcs, a lot, you know, they, they, their full range of emotions is like, uh, this probably may, may not have been the best one to choose. Their full range of emotions is going to be from like haughty to, um, uh, irritated, <laughs> but we'll keep going. All right. Uh, next one. Uh, this, this, uh, gal looks like she shaved part of her head. Um, the rest of her hair is combed to one side and it's, uh, well, combed is, is putting it generously. It's very stringy looking. Um, she wears heavy, heavy armor, uh, scale on the front and then pauldrons that are big and spiky with an iron collar. Um, looks, uh, has kind of a, a sneer and, uh, you know, she looks defensive though, more than aggressive in a way. Uh, she's very upright and, uh, kind of an interesting look on her face. The next one, um, interesting look on her face isn't a very good descriptive term, is it? Uh, <laughs> I would say, uh, I would say wary and, um, curious in a way. Uh, but yeah, 
but also, yeah, very wary, more wary than curious, probably. All right, next one. Uh, again, we have a staff, uh, this time a little more, a little less uh, like rustic. This staff is segmented and, and looks like it's made out of some kind of metal or wood that's banded. Um, again, we have a, a ring, uh, a cloak with, um, it doesn't look particularly martial, right? Some kind of maybe leather, but probably cloth uh, vest and long hair, dark hair in braids and uh, kind of a cocked head with a raised eyebrow um, and looks up, it looks kind of uh, studious and um, curious and uh, yeah, I'd say that. Uh, let's see, I went the wrong direction that way. So bottom row, okay, we have a, a long-faced uh, fighter type with a huge sword over his left shoulder, um, some kind of ring mail probably, chain mail. Um, looks a little bit like Lyle Lovett in an odd way. <laughs> uh, a, he looks grim and determined uh, but possibly friendly. This one looks a little more human than the rest. Um, next one, uh, bald, looking down his nose at you. Uh, doesn't look particularly threatening, but uh, also doesn't look like you. He doesn't look like he wants to be bothered by you. Um, has a big fur collar uh, to his cloak and then heavy, looks like plate mail underneath. His hands are resting on the pommel of some giant weapon that you can't see that's out of picture. So that's cool because it gives you the idea that you might be a great weapon user, but it doesn't tell you which great weapon, right? Um, all right, next one, uh, obviously some kind of roguish character, hair swept back. She's looking down at, uh, has a bandana around her neck and a sleeveless jerkin, and she's looking down at uh, a little bag of gold that she's bouncing in her hand. Um, one of the, my favorite things about this one is that she's got a hairpin uh, that's kind of obviously sticking out of her hair, and it makes me think then, like, if I were playing a rogue, I would probably make that a poisoned hairpin, right? Nice little secondary or surprise weapon. Uh, next one is uh, the next two, actually, we'll just take two together. They both have quivers. They both have bows. Um, one's male, one's female. The female looks, uh, looks like she wants to be friendly, um, but is, is, uh, concerned, right? And the male looks actually looks pretty beaten up by life. Uh, <laughs> His face is kind of drooping on one side. Uh, looks a little morose. He's got a, a scar down one eye. And uh, yeah, he's got on a little heavier. He's got a, like one of those leather jerkins with plates sewn onto it. And uh, then the final one here, we have a bald orc in um, chain mail and plate. So kind of half plate uh, with a with one completely milky eye and a very sullen look to him. Uh, somebody that's like, uh, is just done, right? He's just done. <laughs> He's just done. With no patience for anything. Uh, right. So those are the, the kind of faces and accoutrements that you can work with. Uh, they're, they're just really a fairly easy way to get a hold of a character. I think to look at these photos or, or uh, drawings. Okay. Um, what else to say about this? Well, I guess the big thing to say about it is that it has been re-kickstarted for, for Zine Quest 4, and you can pick up a copy now. You've only got 10 days left to do this, and so um, I'll try to put this podcast out today. That'll give you all this week and a little bit of next. Uh, so 10 days from now is what? Monday, Tuesday, like Wednesday, I think it's going to end next Wednesday. So don't, don't set on it though. If you're going to do it, do it this week. Uh, hopefully you'll hear my podcast by then. And this is August 15th. So 
you'll have until August 25th to, to move on this thing. Um, but go to Kickstarter and I'll put a link in the show notes, go to Kickstarter and put your money down on this thing. If you want a copy, uh, I could totally see going just for the digital copy. If you didn't want a physical copy of the table, it's nice to have the book to be able to just kind of flip it open and show people. But if I go into my folder here, let me find it in my copious, uh, folder of RPG stuff. All right. So it comes in both a four and letter formats, which is nice. It, uh, gonna reposition my windows. So I, cause I gotta watch my time here. I'm two minutes into this segment <laughs> at five minutes. It's going to cut me off. Um, it has bookmarks, which is really cool. So it's like an initiative, they call them initiative trackers, but basically it's got, um, actually they're a little fold over kind of deal. I think, uh, there's a little portrait and a place for the name. And then there's a, on the other side, a little portrait with, um, a smaller one with level AC miscellaneous a name class HP's notes right so that's really cool um, that's very usable I think there's a folder of tokens so there's just each portrait kind of cut out by itself which is great um, there is looks like you know this the typical spreads and singles uh, digital but um, yeah one with crop marks and the whole bit so kind of the full run of what you'd expect from a digital product more than you normally get with digital. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite worth it, I think. And one of the most useful zines I've seen in a long time, I know Goblin's Henchman put a lot of work into this. He's, uh, I think I mentioned this before. He's kind of a perfectionist and, and, um, this is something that he wanted to be exactly right. And I feel like that's, he's gotten exactly, um, I don't know if it's exactly what he wanted out of it, but I, I feel like his exacting standards show on here, this is a very clean and elegant little supplement and extremely useful. I particularly like the inclusion of the, the NPC groups in the back, the nobles, the town folk, because that those are, you know, more likely to be used by the GM in a way that's, that's helpful. Um, and they're not as immediately suggestive of classes uh, or anything like that, but they do could still be used that way. I think in a lot of cases, but yeah, super cool stuff, great drawings, great art, um, well put together, nice zine. It's trimmed on the edge so you can flip thumb, thumb flip through it. Um, looks extremely durable. Like I feel like this book is going to last a long time, uh, without, without me worrying about it too much. I don't have to you know, I wouldn't just throw it in my bag, but I also don't have to baby it. So yeah, good stuff. Um, go support that if you want to. Uh, and if you need, I can't imagine why you wouldn't, but if you need a, um, um, a set of portraits, you know, for use in your campaign, then I highly recommend the face folio. I had some really nice feedback on my last show about my entry story into the hobby. I don't know how much of a story it was and, and how much of it was just name dropping all the things I remember from when I was a kid. And it's not even all. I mean, I didn't mention comics like the Micronauts and Rom the Space Knight. Um, I didn't mention uh, or, or like even my uncle left us a, a trunk of old comics. And I remember particularly liking the few Fantastic Fours that were in there and uh, the Star Spangled War stories that involved army men versus dinosaurs, which I, I loved. And, um, and of course, the old Uncle Scrooge comics. I don't know why I say of course, but those were pretty amazing. The Uncle Scrooge and Huey, Dewey and Louie stuff by Carl Barks. Really, really cool stuff. Um, more so than you would think. I know that sounds corny, but it's actually really good. And then um, they were very much like lost world tales, by the way. A lot of them were, were 
um, Scrooge McDuck looking for some lost city of gold or, or something cool. And so they had a little bit of historic bent, which I liked. And I also didn't mention the, um, what I think was, Oh, sorry. I just hit my mic. Uh, <laughs> what I think was called the $3 million monster movie. Uh, and I'm sure I've talked about this before, but every day when I got off the bus, I would get off the bus at like, it seems like it was right around three ten or something. And of course it would start at three o'clock. The, the monster movie would start at three o'clock. So I'd run into the house and turn on the TV, usually use the bathroom, right? Uh, like as quickly as I could, you know how it is when you're a kid, you like wait till the very last minute and then you, um, you know, <laughs> so, so, um, but I would often miss the first few minutes of the monster movies that would kind of explain everything. Maybe that was best in some ways, but, uh, yeah, I used to love watching uh, mostly Godzilla movies, right? Like, uh, those kind of monster movies, but every once in a while they were, they were a little more, a uh, little weirder, more contemplative. I particularly like Roger Corman's, uh, attack of the crab monsters. That one was one of my favorites. And, uh, the, yeah, so, uh, and the, and the Godzilla ones were, which I thought were silly at the time, but I also loved them. The ones that look like, uh, uh, pro wrestling matches right between kaiju <laughs> i think those are great well uh just lots of good memories there and thank you uh, to jason and to chris shorb and to paul ironicles who contacted me to say that they enjoyed the show and had similar memories memories paul uh was disappointed that i didn't mention he-man uh, a specific, specifically because Paul and I have a, Paul bought me a, uh, as a gift, bought me the Castle Grayskull, like a kind of an old, um, emptied out version of the Castle Grayskull. Didn't have any of the shells or anything in it, but it was fine because I turned it into a really cool, uh, GM screen slash dice tower thing, uh, painted it. It looks awesome. Uh, I haven't used it much to be honest, but the, you, you drop dice in the, in the tower at the top and it comes out the mouth of the, of, and it's got shells for holding all kinds of junk and I've got led lights inside of it. Um, the eyes I drilled through so that like the, I put gemstones in them so that they glow different colors. And yeah, it's really neat. I don't know why I don't use it much. I guess it's just, it's not super practical, but it's, it's cool looking. Well, um, and, and so we have that between us, but honestly, uh, uh, He-Man came a little after me um, in the sense that I was, uh, I think, late high school when it was on TV. And I remember the only time I saw it was I, I was helping a woman I worked with out. She had a, a kid who was kind of a latchkey kid, and she uh, would come in. Uh, for, she had two jobs. So she would come in from her first job, uh, single mom, right, working her ass off. Uh, she would come in about an hour and 15 minutes after her kid would get off the bus. So I would just uh, go to his house and wait for him to get off the bus and then hang out with him until she got home during that time on uh, a lot of days just to kind of help her out. And he would watch He-Man sometimes. And uh, that's the only time I ever saw it really. But, <laughs> but yeah, that, that and like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I missed a little just because they were a little after me. Um, I was more Thundar, Super Friends, um, you know, Black Star. I think I mentioned Flash Gordon. Oh, I love the Flash Gordon cartoons. Um, just, just stuff like that. Uh, Johnny Quest, of course, Johnny Quest. But yeah, so, so many things to mention, so many memories. But I'm sure you all have memories that maybe from a different time zone. So maybe you connect with mine, maybe you didn't. But thanks for listening and indulging me on that. And thanks for the, the kind words and the call-ins. Next up, we have a bunch of call-ins from uh, previous episodes, the last couple episodes. Um, and I'll comment on each one as they come up. Uh, the first one is from Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Podcast talking about 
uh, early experiences and learning from reading a book versus being taught. Hey, Ray, with the end of episode 336, where you're talking about RPG a day and early experiences, I'm one of those people that learned by reading the set. I, I was not introduced through a group, but I was given the Mensur Basic set, and then we got the Marvel Superhero set, the original Yellow Box, which was actually the first game I ran for somebody else. And yeah, I learned from from those, but I definitely agree with your your thoughts. It's definitely better to learn through somebody else and learn through a group. It's much easier to learn that way. But I guess that's why it's interesting, the idea of which books do a good job of teaching somebody if they only have that book. And that's why I think like the Star Wars, back in the day, the West End Star Wars and Ghostbusters and Marvel Super, the TSR Marvel Superheroes, I think they all did a pretty good job. Or BX, especially BX, where it teaches you how to run a game, I think is really good. You know, you, you raise a lot of interesting questions there for me, Jason. Um, what makes a good RPG book in terms of teaching someone how to play and or engaging their imagination? And I think the answer might be a little counterintuitive, honestly. Um, I, I'm a big proponent of uh, like kids reading above the reading level. Like I read, I was precocious, I guess, in that way. And I read a lot of things that were above my reading level and I didn't always understand them. But that was part of the attraction for me was the mystery of, you know, figuring things out. Sometimes I would take the time to figure them out. Sometimes I would just, I'm a kind of an intuitive person and I would think I know what it meant. Like I would kind of take a guess at what it meant <laughs> and just go, you know, like get things in context and build up this. And sometimes I was wrong, but it would still build up something kind of rich in my head. And I think that was an uh, experience a lot of us had with the early materials uh, like AD&D where it was so like evocative that we didn't care that it didn't explain itself well. And that goes a long way, but there is a definitely something really attractive too about a game that just, that, that just reads well, right. That you just get from the, from the beginning. And um, I'm trying to think of an example of that. I really thought that for instance, inspectors was a game that explained itself very well, especially for a game that was very different than any other game coming out at that time. Or, well, maybe not from any other game, but it was belonged to that, uh, what was then a very small group of, uh, storytelling games and, uh, you know, kind of new thinking along those lines of narrative games. So that, that book is a really good one to look at. I think, um, I, I really enjoy reading Into the Odd. Does a good do, does a good a good job of explaining? Yeah, I think it does. Actually, I think it does a good job of explaining itself Into the Odd, especially the new edition. Um, uh, and I still mean to review that, by the way, pretty soon. I, <laughs> I've been remiss in reviewing that. I've got I've read it actually a couple times now uh, since I got it. It's just it's so cool, and uh, it's easy to sit down and read. You can read most of it in one sitting. You can actually read the whole thing in one sitting if you're not. Uh, it just that when you get into the the dungeon levels and stuff, the sample scenario bits. Sometimes I, I get a little tired reading things like that. I have to kind of take it a little more slowly, but so maybe not for one sitting, but the rules you can easily read in one sitting, one easy sitting actually, because they're pretty short and all the advice and all that. And it's a, it's a neat game. So, um, but I, I agree. BX was, uh, was a good teaching book. And especially I think I don't have a lot of experience with the Mincer Beckme, but I, I understand that the Mincer Basic was even more so aimed at teaching and it had like a solo scenario and things like that based on t introducing the game to people. So as an artifact that you could just put in the hands of 
of a of a novice, right? If somebody uh, who didn't know anything about role playing games, it's kind of cool to have that aspect. And I I wonder then about <clears throat> excuse me about old school games. I'm gonna have to pause the mic here. I'm sorry. I should probably re-record that, but you know, but a <laughs> guerrilla podcasting, right? Um, perfect is the enemy of done. One of my favorite phrases, uh, and I say it a lot, and I live by it a lot. <laughs> uh, so what was I saying? Oh, it makes me wonder about some of the OSR texts that come out. Um, you know, all these uh, retro clones and riffs off the original system that kind of assume a lot of knowledge, like you already know how to play a role-playing game. I wonder how many of these, how many of those could could easily be picked up and work with. I, I uh, reviewed Warlock not too long ago and mentioned that like the, the intro text there, the kind of what is a role-playing game text and the GM advice were so small that I almost wish it didn't even have them because it, it kind of tries to do like take a quick stab at that, but it doesn't really do enough to maybe actually explain it. Right. So maybe even better just to say like, well, you know, if you don't know role-playing games, go read something else or go play one and then like approach this, <laughs> which is a dumb thing to say. I mean, nobody, no designer is going to say that really well, some have, but it's, it's rare that they would say that. So I don't know. Um, I think it's good to take, let's just say it's good to take the time to kind of just give a, a good solid basic explanation of what play feels like and how the game looks at the table. I think we all assume we're doing the same things too, and we're not, you know? Um, so it's kind of nice to, to communicate what games look like at your table and how you uh, run your own game and, you know, maybe how you would expect other people to run it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it's always a good question to ask when you approach a text, like how, how approachable is this text? Like how, if I were brand new, what would I know? Would I just be confounded by this or is it something I could pick up and play right away? And that's that there's a lot to be said for people who can do that, who can write that way. All right. Next up, we have a call from RuneSlinger. Hey, Ray, this is Anthony calling in from the car, from the Casting Shadows podcast. And I just wanted to say thanks for your participation in RPG A Day 2022. Uh, I know it wasn't your intention to participate, but wow, great comments. And I felt such sudden kinship with you. A lot of what you were saying is exactly how I feel about things, especially your closing remarks about play with people you care about and care about the people you play with. Absolutely fantastic. Your thoughts on interests, I think, is a very cogent and concise way of you know, preparing yourself to do that very thing. Not so much about evangelization, but I've got people to introduce. How can I do it in a way that works for them and for me? Anyway, great stuff. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Anthony. I don't know how you managed to sound better recording from your car than I do sitting here at my desk with a blue Yeti mic that I apparently don't know how to use very well, but, um, kudos to you, uh, casting shadows, cool podcast. You're super articulate and I really enjoy hearing you talk. So it's fun to have you call into my show. Um, yeah, I, I kind of feel like maybe that should be my new, you know, closing tagline, which is, uh, play games you care about, play with people you care about and care about the people you play with. Right. And, um, those are, those are important things for us to remember. I think that just goes, it, it, uh, is a salve that goes over a multitude of ills, right? Like, <laughs> uh, uh, personality conflicts, um, system flaws, uh, you know, intermittent 
uh, participation, all those things can kind of be solved by just uh, a little bit of, uh, of energy and empathy and care in, in what you're playing, who you play with. Uh, and, uh, and it's, it's not enough just to like pre-select people. When I say play with people you care about and care about people you play with, those are really two different things, you know, like it's, it's good to play with friends that you already appreciate, but it's also uh, very important that you, appreciate the people who play with you and learn to appreciate their different personalities and to, to care for them, like, you know, encourage them and praise them and, uh, tell them that you appreciate them and, uh, you know, bring snacks and just <laughs> things like that. Right. To kind of, I, Paul, my friend, Paul is really good at this. He, he, and, and Bill is too. They're very good at like being positive and like letting me know when they appreciate me and uh, I'm not always good at that, so it's it's uh, they're good people to learn from that way. And uh, yeah, thanks thanks again for calling in. Hey Ray, I I love it when people that are smarter than me and way better spoken than me call up to explain things in a way that I I'm not very good at doing. So thank you to James for that. Uh, but I I would like to say like as far as Malazan goes, I've never looked at. A map of Malazan. I, I just read the books without doing any additional research. And everything you're just saying about Chronicles of Amber, how the world is shown to you little by little, and you don't understand everything about the world or even how magic works till later on in the books, that's all true of the Malazan series. You don't really know how the magic works. You don't really know what these factions are all about or who they are. You get exposed to them little by little. You don't need to have background knowledge. It just gets explained throughout. I don't know, man. I, I Give it a try. You might not like it, but I think it's amazing. Anyway, dude, peace out. Yeah, Joe. Um, believe it or not, I actually started that book over vacation, had it with me uh, on my Kindle on the beach of all things, and uh, read, uh, I don't know, four or five chapters, maybe six. Really enjoyed it. I really did. It was like um, the writing was good. It, it was clearly giving me a lot of information. I had to read, sometimes I'd read a couple paragraphs over and over, you know, like to make sure I understood what was going on. Cause I feel like this is one of those books that if you get lost early, you're going to be lost forever. And, and I want to try to kind of like, you know, as much as I can understand from context, what's going on without taking notes. And, and so that was super cool. And I don't get the sense that he's telling me things that aren't important in, in, on some level. So it's really neat. And the world is automatically communicated as being very diverse and big and weird and fun. Um, so I'm excited about that. Now, having said that, I don't think it's the right book for a beach, right? <laughs> like I'm not much of a beach person anyway. I told my wife when we got home, I said, well, if you take out all the parts where we were driving, or uh, walking or lying on a beach. I really enjoyed our vacation and, I, and we laughed because that was about like 80% of our vacation. But I, we also did lots of other really cool things. Um, got to see Pearl Harbor and um, some historic lookouts and, and learn some uh, Polynesian history and uh, saw the palace there and did some shopping and, and just, it was such a beautiful place, of course. Um, and I, you know, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Even even the beach, to some extent, I enjoyed quite a bit, especially uh, at night and and sunsets and things. I'm sort of a cockroach. I I don't love direct sun, and I when I walk on the street, I, I move from shadow to shadow as much as I can when it's hot. You know, <laughs> but I could take a few hours on a beach, right? Put on the sunscreen, uh, put on my bucket hat and sunglasses, and um, yeah, I, I even have some color now. I'm actually not 
pasty white, uh, but uh, I did enjoy it a lot. And, uh, but it just, it just didn't feel like the place to read something that substantial. Right. Um, and I think that that may be the, there is an investment hurdle in the book. I could just tell there is right. But it, it feels like it's really cool. And I'm, I'm definitely going to, um, I'm definitely going to get back to it here shortly when I'm ready to, when I kind of clear my plate just a little bit and I'm ready to commit. But uh, yeah, first experience, first impression, really cool. Uh, we're going to come back to Jason for um, three call-ins here. So three minutes worth of talk about David Lynch and world building that I think is worth listening to and commenting on. So here we go with Jason. Hey, Ray, Jason here. Just listened to episode 336. I paused after the first part. I'm getting ready to get into the RPG day part. But as far as world building goes, it's a little bit of a tangent, but it's interesting. I've recently got turned back on to Twin Peaks, which is a show I love. The third season kind of turned me off, but I'm back into it and, and looking at reading all the fan stuff and listening to thoughts and all. And the thing about Lynch is Lynch is an artist in the true sense of the word. So his medium, he doesn't paint. He doesn't write. He doesn't sculpt. He uses moving pictures, motion picture for his art. And so when you're watching his movies and, and, you're, and, and you see this in different degrees over the years, you, but it's not about the plot. It's not about the story. It's about the feeling you get from watching. It's the impressions you get from watching. It's, that's what's important. And that's, how, and that's how he's, you know, portraying his art is through the, the emotions, the feelings you get from, from watching it. So when you talk about getting people getting involved in the world and being worried the world's too big and the backstory and all that, we see that with especially the Twin Peaks and especially the Twin Peaks The Return, the 2017 Showtime series, where, you know, you're not supposed to try to put it together logically from following the plot points. You're, you're supposed to just get the feeling, right? And, and like, you know... Any of it, especially his later movies, his, his newer movies, he's gone along this trajectory a lot because he's been like, let do it. And, and his earlier movies, when you see Racerhead and stuff like that, Eraserhead isn't about the plot, it's about the feelings, right? And, yeah, I don't know, but it's kind of the same thing with these books. So, do you really need the backstory? Logically, our mind wants it. We, we want it, but we don't really need it. And it's the same thing with Lynch's films. To unlock and join those films, you have to give up that need to understand the plot if that makes sense. And I guess Conan is the perfect example of this, as is Elric. And, and I think your mentioning of Elric is what brought this up because those stories are written out of order, so it doesn't matter what grab you, order you grab them in, really. And it's and, and Moorcock's kind of like that, right? You don't necessarily have to grab it in order. You can grab it as you can find it, uh, which, unfortunately, in our country is kind of hard to find it sometimes. But I, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that, on, on Lynch and that impressionist kind of storytelling as opposed to a you know detailed plot storytelling and again if, if if this isn't something you want to do on your show just let me know and, and and i'll do something on my show so sorry for all the messages and i still have half your show to listen to <laughs> honestly i don't have a lot to add i think you nailed it i i think some storytellers um just approach a world, maybe not even fully understanding it themselves and are communicating a feeling as much as anything. I think China Mieville is one of these authors. Like if you read, uh, the only scar book I've read is, um, Hmm. Oh, actually, sorry. It's the scar. The only, 
uh, he's got a book, uh, he's got a series of books called, uh, that are set in this world, a new Crobazon. And the first one is Perdido street station. And I think the last one's like the iron council or something, but the middle one is called the scar and they're self-contained. And, uh, that's one where you don't really need to know the world is huge, but you don't really need to know the world, right? You can just kind of dump yourself into it. Um, I think another one that was kind of interesting like that was, uh, from a long time ago is, uh, uh, Lord Valentine's Castle by Robert Silverberg. Read that a number of times when I was a kid and really enjoyed it for its kind of uh, world building and you know kind of just kind of you get dropped into the world and experience it from the inside out. And I definitely think that uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of media like that that's probably some of my favorite media because it gives you that sense of discovery as you're as you're experiencing it. Right, like you you get not only the joy of like uh, just the cool plots and characters and all that, but you also become the explorer who, who gets to learn about this world uh, along with the characters. And uh, that's really cool. I was a huge, I was a huge Twin Peaks fan uh, when it was on TV. I've not actually watched the revisit. I think I'm a little leery, but I probably get to it at some point, not watch the, uh, the revisit, but in the third season um, I enjoyed it, it. It wasn't totally satisfying, but I'm not sure you can ever satisfy like you think about shows like Lost or whatever, um, they spend so much time setting up this atmosphere that it can kind of get away from you. And, uh, you know, trying to tie it up in a neat bundle is probably not the best way to do it. Like maybe Twin Peaks should have ended with just lost lots of mystery and uh, <laughs> and left the question open, right? Um, you know, the, the whole who shot JR season of Dallas, um, maybe the Twin Peaks is like, you know, who killed, uh, oh shoot, what was the girl's name? They got killed. That starts the whole show. Now, any rate, maybe they should have left that question open. Uh, I just gave you a really good hint. Uh, one of the things I really liked about the ending of The Sopranos, for instance, was that uh, and uh, spoilers. I'll try not to spoil it, but probably spoilers was that uh, it leaves it open as to what happens in that final scene, like whether or not um, the shooting uh, was successful. Let's put it that way. And that's, I thought that was cool. I mean, you sort of know, but you sort of don't know, you know what I mean? Uh, and I dig that. I dig that. Uh, what was, there was a movie that ended like that recently that just kind of left you wondering. And I, I, somebody said, Oh, I didn't, wasn't very satisfied with the ending. I said, I love the endings. I love the ending. Cause it didn't, it didn't tie everything up so much that you couldn't like forecast ahead and think about what might happen next, but you didn't really need to know what happened next. Right. Um, Boy, I wish I could remember what that was, but I can't. So, eh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> go take my Prevagen, right? Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. I, I think I've been exceptionally long-winded today, but um, if you only listen to the first half of the Face Folio, maybe, maybe you got a less long-winded version of this podcast. Um, you know, as always, I'm appreciative of the people who hang out there with me and, and like to to toss ideas back and forth. It is a conversation. It is a community and, uh, your call-ins are, are much appreciated. Your thoughts are much appreciated. They often drive more thoughts of my own and personal growth and, and all that good stuff. So, um, you know, to double tagline this show, right? Play games you care about, play with people you care about and care about the people you play with, but also look out for those rust monsters. <laughs>